Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We can gather together in worship and reflection upon our great God and, and our Lord Savior, and, and as well as get, get a chance to enjoy our families and friends and another day that the Lord gives to us. If you have a Bible or a digital device or a great memory, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, again, just want to just take this week and share some things that God's been teaching me, and so Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it's a very familiar passage of scripture. If you have been saved uh, longer than a few years, you, you've probably heard this preached or memorized this verse, but these verses, but let me just read them for us, just two verses. I'm reading from the ESV Standard Bible, Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, one version says author and finisher of our faith. Notice this expression, who for the joy, can't wait to unpack that, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to speak a few moments on a winning life, a winning life. Every um, sports fan desires to see their team win. I was reminded of the Falcons, New England, Hume Lake, New England, the ministry of the Patriots. We Christmas gift Tom Brady with the championship. I'm still recovering. I need therapy. Everybody and their mother was like, do not give Tom Brady any time. Come on, Falcons, you know better. But yet, through some foolish uh, play calls and decisions, our team lost, and I was ticked off for the rest of the year. If you can probably catch my frustration now, I'm frustrated in Jesus' name. But every sports fan wants to see their team win, right? And every team has a goal to win it all. And to think otherwise, you might want to think of another career, in fact, it's been said, uh, the story, classic story of Michael Jordan um, was dominating, and the team, his team wasn't winning in this particular game. He comes back to the bench, and I think it was a coach that said to him, said, hey, man, there's no I in team. And Jordan quickly said, well, there's I in win. <laughs> winning is a big deal in sports, and winning is a big deal to God. Do you know that God is a winner? His record is a billion and zero. My God, our God, does not lose. And God wants to win in your life and in my life. And the greatest victory is what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so we can experience a winning life. Hebrews is a classic book. It's a classic book, a profound book. In Hebrews chapter 11, that great, great hall of faith chapter, if you will, where we see God at work using ordinary people, messed up people, imperfect people to make a statement about himself, that he is a glorious God and that he can take anybody and win. Anybody and win. And so now we come to Hebrews chapter 12. The writer is moving 
from talking about those in the past, in Hebrews chapter 11, to now those in the present, to his present audience, and by way of inspiration of the Holy Spirit to us. And when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, here's my message in a sentence. It's three words. Embrace your moment. That's the message in a sentence. Embrace your moment. We have one life. Embrace your moment. If you and I want to have a winning life, we need to embrace our moment and moment moments. And it's seen in three challenges. The first challenge, if you and I want to embrace our moment, is that we need to reject. What do you mean? Well, you see, it says here, the first part of verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, therefore, notice this, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Interesting. He's linking chapter 11, the great hall of faith, to this next section. Therefore, in light of God at work in their lives, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I need to bring some clarity to this. Uh, because witnesses here does not refer to people who have died who are somehow watching us. Let me just go on record and say this. Our loved ones who have died, they're not with us. They're not watching us. They are in a full state of eternity, either consumed by the presence of God or consumed by the wrath of God. For it is appointed unto man to die once, then after that comes the judgment. So when the writer is saying witnesses here, he's not referring to people who have died or these great people who have died and somehow they're watching us. That's horrible interpretation of the text to think otherwise. But witnesses here has to do with the great hall of faith chapter of these people in their moment in history that just like they witnessed the faithfulness of God in their moment they witnessed the power of God they witnessed the deliverance of God they witnessed God coming through they bear witness because of their personal witness that we too can witness the power of God in our moment in history that's what the text is saying since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, people who have witnessed the faithfulness of God in their moment in history, then we too could witness the faithfulness of God in their moment in history. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here it is, let us also lay aside, lay aside every weight. One version says, throw off. The idea is to reject. It's not something you pray about nor read a scripture about. No, you immediately get rid of the things that slow us down. There are a lot of weights, burdens, loads. There are a lot of things in our lives that hinders movement. We can think of a boatload of things, but let me give you two biggies that we all will struggle with in life. One particular weight that we all can struggle with is the weight of worry. How many of us know that worry can slow us down? Anxiety can hinder movement. It can steal our joy. It can make us powerless. It can paralyze us. I'm reminded of John 14, verse 27, where it says, well, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Speaking to his disciples, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, if Jesus 
is giving us peace, why in the world do we decide to pick up worry? We cannot walk in faith and be anxious at the same time. I cannot experience all that God has for me and be consumed with the weightiness of my problems of the world. And so this weight of worry is a struggle that we all will find ourselves dealing with. We struggle, we struggle, we struggle. Another weight that slows us down is the weight of laziness. Hmm. Now, let's get more specific. I'm talking about spiritual laziness. Yeah, yeah, I'm going there. I mean, think about it. We, are, we, we, we got so much here in, in America. With the, touch of a, with the touch of a device, we can download a, a Bible version. We can get free stuff off of Google. We can, all these different free commentaries and all these resources. And how is it that we are still a half inch deep in our walk with God? In fact, it's been said, one scholar said that the American church is 3,000 miles wide, but a half inch deep. Where's the depth? We've been saved for X amount of years, but yet we still haven't read through the scriptures. We're still stuck on baby food when we should be on the steak and potato ministry. Hello, filet mignon. Spiritual laziness is killing us. And I cannot walk in faith. I cannot experience God. If I'm spiritually lazy at the same time, I got to I got to put some goals to my to to, to my life. I got to challenge myself. And this is why we got to stay committed to a solid church, stay committed to a community of believers, surround ourselves with people that can help us and challenge us to go deeper in our walk with God. We should be further along. But yet this weight of spiritual laziness is one that slows us down. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and notice in the next phrase, and sin which clings so closely. One version says, the sin that so easily entangles. Did you catch it? The sin, the sin, it's singular. In context, this has to do with the issue of unbelief, that's why over and over again in the book of Hebrews, you, you see this, this phrase. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. The issue of unbelief is a real deal. In fact, one scholar writes that it was unbelief that kept Israel out of the promised land. And it is unbelief that hinders us from entering to our spiritual inheritance in Christ. So in context, this singular, this sin he's referring to is persistent unbelief. And he says that this sin clings so closely. It ambushes us. Now, some of us may not have an unbelief problem, but we all have a sin problem. Somebody say, amen, brother. All two of you. <laughs> Romans 7.21 says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Ooh, isn't that the truth? Isn't it, isn't it interesting? We, we set a goal to, to spend uh, more time in prayer, set a goal to, to grow in our relationship with Christ, and it just seems like the same day you set it, boom, something else happens. Sin is close at hand. Psalm 51 verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, sin has a way of choking the spiritual life out of us. Sin has a way of blocking us from experiencing all that God has for us. So what do we do? What do we do? How in the world can we get into this matter of rejecting the things that easily entangle us? Well, let me give you two suggestions. Number one, we need to identify that thing, that person, whatever it is, identify what's slowing me down and get rid of it. And, and let's just be honest, you don't have to pray about that one. We know what it is. We know who it is. What is that thing? Who is that person? What is that circumstance that I find myself gravitating towards? And I know it's not good for me. I know it's still in my joy. I need to deal with that and lay it before God and ask God to help me. Maybe bring in some accountability people. A brother, a sister, a pastor. Identify what's slowing me down and get rid of it. Another portion of application is we need to let the faithful inspire us. Let the faithful inspire us. Who are those people in your life that you can ride their spiritual coattails, so to speak? Who are those people in your life that has impacted you, that, that has influenced you, that, that, that you look up to, that is like a spiritual champion in your life? Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a, it's a neighbor. Maybe it's just a, just a faithful woman of God. I think of people in my own life that, that has influenced my life. My father, my mother, uh, my Sunday school teachers, my pastor, and, and key men in Bible college and in seminary who are like spiritual uh, guides. Even right now, whenever I got to make a critical decision, I, I talk with them and I praise God for them. But maybe you're here today and you're, you're like, man, I don't have anybody. Well, I thought about you when I read Romans 15, verse 4, which says, For whatsoever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We can look to the Scriptures and get hope. We can get, look to the Scriptures and get strength. We can draw from our, from our intimacy with God from the pages of Scripture. Aren't you glad for God's Word? So we need to make the decision to reject what's holding us back, and we need to anchor ourselves into the inspiration of God's Word and the influence of other people who have gone before us. The writer says that we need to embrace our moment, so we need to reject. But secondly, he also tells us that we need to run. Run for us. Run. <laughs> and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run, haste, speed. This isn't a power walk. This isn't elliptical ministry. This is all out a marathon run. And this type of running requires effort that I'm not phoning it in. I'm not living off of somebody else's faith. No, I'm giving it my all for the sake of Christ. So he says, let us run. It requires effort. But this type of running is also a glorious struggle. Why is it a glorious struggle? Because God is working in and through me. Philippians 1, 6, where I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
I love what one preacher said, that God has given us, has not given us the provision for us to live the Christian life. It's Christ who lives the Christian life. Did you get that? I'm so glad he doesn't leave it up to me and says, hey, man, just white knuckle it to heaven. No, we need something supernatural because a Christian life is a supernatural reality. This is what separates us from all of the world religions. We have the Spirit of God. We have access to the Father. We have Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's all supernatural. And this type of running requires effort. Yes, I do my part. But it's a glorious struggle because it's God working in and through me for his will and for his pleasure. So and let us run with endurance the race, the race that is set before us, the race that's marked out before us. What then is that race? It is the Christian life. That we are here on purpose, for a purpose, to serve the purposes of God. Acts 13, 36, David says, you know, it talks about David. And David, after, after he served the purposes of God, he fell asleep and saw corruption. He served the purposes of God. You and I exist to serve the purposes of God. It's no wonder why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beat in the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. One version says, make it my slave, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, I want to give it my all. And I'm running for a purpose. One of the things that I enjoy about watching football practices or basketball, and you see Steph Curry, the greatest shooter God ever created. Oh, my goodness. That, that's a bad boy. That's, that's a bad man. And that's actually a positive statement. That's not negative for those who don't know what I'm talking about. But one of the things that, that you learn about Steph Curry and many other great athletes, the key to practice is that you got to finish the place. What good is it if he just dribbles and dribbles and all these tricks? It means nothing. Unless the brother scores. What good is it for a wide receiver in practice to, take, to catch a pass, you know, run his route, stop, catch the ball, and go back to the huddle? No, 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 no. If you ever watch football players practice, the wide receiver catches the ball, and he runs all the way to the, to the end zone. Why? Because the coach wants him to be programmed in his muscle memory to always finish the play. Ladies and gentlemen, starting well is easy, but finishing well is a challenge. Anybody can start well. I'm so glad God, God's not going to say to us, well, start. No. Well done. See, this is why it's frustrating. Every January, every gym in America is packed. <laughs> but they'll quit by Valentine's. It's true. I got my little routine, I got my little four classes that I go to at the YMCA, and I always laugh because I'm thinking, okay, we'll just give it about two weeks. And you always know the people who don't really belong there. They're the ones that try to do extra stuff, like, come on, bro, you ain't work out in a year, and you think you, you're Mr. Olympia or something, you're making all these grunts, ah, got all the extra bands and all the, all the extra whatever you got on, and I'm like, okay, I just laugh, I'm like, he gonna be gone in two weeks, and lo and behold, they quit. You look the part. You start well, but once that instructor starts putting you through some stuff, you're like, man, this ain't for me. 
This ain't for me. Listen, starting well is easy, but finishing well is a challenge. And God wants us all to finish well. I don't know about you, but I don't want to run at the tape. I want to run through the tape. I don't want to just run through the tape like this. I want to run leaning forward in Jesus' name. That's God's heart for every follower of Jesus, to finish well. This isn't perfection because we're all going to stumble. We'll fall flat on our face. But my goodness, keep on getting up and running in Jesus' name. And so we need to run. We need to give it our all. And may we be a people that runs through the tape and finish the race that God has set before us. So if we want to embrace our moment, we need to reject, we need to run, and oh, hallelujah, number three, and finally, we need to look. You see it in the text, <laughs> looking to Jesus, oh, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Looking to Jesus. One version says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is analogous to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 13b, where Peter says, set your hope or fix your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This idea of looking and fixing, it really reminds me of uh, several years ago when my wife and I were living in Nashville. We bought our first and only house that we had purchased, and I was so excited to hang this flat screen on the wall in the living room, but the brother didn't have that skill set, and I didn't want to damage anything, so I called the ministers of Best Buy, <laughs> the Geek Squad. They come in, and I tell them where I want to hang my little 55-inch, you know, Samsung television. And he says, okay, Mr. Loritz. And the very first thing he does is he gets over to the wall, and he starts knocking on the wall. Starts knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. I'm like, what are you doing? He was like, well, Mr. Loritz, if I hang the television on this drywall, it might look cute for a little while, but it's going to show no fall. So what I'm doing is I'm listening for the stud, and as he's talking to me, he finds the stud, and he begins to say, that the stud is part of a foundation and a larger structure behind the wall so that when I fix your television, you can enjoy the experience and never have to worry about it falling off because it's anchored and connected to something greater than itself. That's what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is seeking sand. That my eyes are fixed on Jesus. That when people look at your life and my life, they should see that we have in the words of Pastor Rocky Balboa, that I got the eye of the tiger on my Lord. I'm fixed on Jesus. Why? Because he's my anchor. He's my living hope. He's my living hope. And that's why he says the founder or the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith, the originator, the, the pioneer of our faith. And I love this. I told you I was going to get to this. Who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, from a fleshly standpoint, that don't even make sense. That actually seems kind of weird. But for the believer, this is a profound statement. And as I was studying this, I'm like, 
I'm asking the passage questions because that's what I like to do when I study God's word. I'm, I'm like, well, what was the joy that was set before him? What in the world was the joy that was set before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What enabled Jesus to endure the cross? You ask great questions at 7.50 p.m. on Wednesday evening, July 5th. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. What was the joy? Let me give you four quick answers to that question. This joy that the writer is speaking about is this. Number one, Jesus knew he would complete the Father's will. In other words, it was a done deal. Nothing was going to stop our Savior. John chapter 17, verse 4 says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So this joy, Jesus knew he would complete the Father's will. This joy, number two, Jesus knew he would rise again from the dead. By the way, death couldn't hold our Savior. He's so powerful. By the way, when Lazarus was in, his, was in his tomb, the power of God is so powerful, he had to specifically call Lazarus' name or else everybody would have came up out the grave. Death could not hold our Savior down. Acts chapter 2, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This joy Jesus knew he would rise from the dead. Number three, this joy, Jesus knew he will be exalted. Glory belongs to him. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This joy, number four, is that Jesus knew, this is us right here, Jesus knew he would present believers to the Father in glory. Jesus keeps his promises. And Jesus keeps us. Jude 24 and 25, I love this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Hallelujah. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This joy that was set before him, notice, endured the cross. Check out this phrase, despising the shame. What? What? What does he mean? This is what he means. He willingly accepted the public humiliation. He willingly accepted the 39 lashes on his back. He willingly laid out and stretched his hand on an old rugged cross. He willingly took nine inch nails, not through his hand here, but through his wrist, piercing his main artery. He willingly got stuck in a post where all the bones in his body became disconnected and he struggled to breathe, thinking about you and me. He despised the shame because he knew on the other side there was glory. There's victory. And as I said the other day, he was paying a bill for you and me. He despises shame. 
He willingly accepted the public disgrace of his public crucifixion. And here it is. And he did not let either its suffering or its shame pull him away from his goal. And that is to make payment for you and me. And that's why the writer says, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. I'll never forget first time I went to Israel with my dad's church. We're at the Western Wall. And we got a tour in this little museum where it was a replica of the Holies of Holies. This young Jewish woman is telling us, and you can see the garments on the priest. I mean, she, it was pretty fascinating to see. And somebody in our group asked her, well, since you all don't have a sacrificial system now, what do you do on the Day of Atonement? What, what do you, well, how do you make payment for your sin? And she, she said with confidence, well, every year on the Day of Atonement, we go to our local synagogue and we just confess before God and we try to do better the next year. And I was saddened. And we realized that Paul would even say in Romans that there is a partial blindness that has come over the Jews. Now, there are a lot of Jews that have come into Christ, but it's a real reality. Listen to me. Jesus Christ has made payment. Jesus Christ has made payment once and for all. Aren't you glad? We don't have to. We, 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 man, I would be at the temple every day. Yeah, I'm here again. Here's, 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 another, here's, here's another sacrifice. Here I am. Yeah, I'm in line again. You too? Come on, man. But no. Once and for all. It is finished. Tony Evans, great theologian, makes an observation here that I thought was pretty fascinating. He said, how did Jesus himself reach the finish line? The joy would come on Sunday, but the shame had to be endured on Friday. The Son of God made it through Friday by keeping his eyes on Sunday. We need no better example, regardless of the suffering and trials we're facing know that resurrection day is coming. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We are a people of hope. Now, this world uses hope a lot different. Like, I hope my team wins. I hope the Falcons go to the Super Bowl and not blow it this time. I hope she says yes. I hope this meal is good. Yeah, that's cute, but that's based on circumstances. But the hope we have in Christ is not based on a temporary reality. It's based on a victorious Savior, that he is our living hope. And so do we need forgiveness? He has power. Do we need wind in our sails? He has power. Do we need cleansing? He has power. We can look to Jesus. We can praise his name because he lives. Because he lives. So we must reject. We must reject that is what's holding us back. We must run this race, give it our all, knowing that the Spirit of God and God will empower us. But we must always keep our eyes on Jesus. Life will always make more sense when I keep my eyes on him. 
If I take my eyes off him, Jesus said it best, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be spiritually out of shape when it comes to doing kingdom business. And Paul would challenge us to train ourselves in godliness. And we must make that commitment today. Lord, I'm going to embrace my moment. All I have is one life. And I don't want to play Russian roulette with my life. Listen, I was a youth pastor in Chicago for six years. And i got to be honest with you, I've done, I've done too many funerals of teenagers. A lot of them wasted their lives. Wrong crowd. One kid led him to Christ. The next week he got shot and killed. So many of our kids, not just in inner cities, across this landscape need prayer. Life is short. Every time we turn on the news, there's something that's happening. And we don't know when God's going to tell us, give me back my breath. This could be our very last day. And so we need to take our life with a sense of holy urgency. Because we don't know when our appointment with God will come. And so it's best for us to make the decisions today. Lord, I'm going to take you seriously. That's really what fearing God means, to take God seriously. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful scripture. Thank you that it's a challenge for us. Maybe there's some soul searching we need to do, getting alone with you. Maybe there's some callousness in our own hearts. Let the Spirit of God convict. Lord, I, I, I don't want things to hold me back. So, Lord, I want to live my life before you. I want to keep short account of my sin. I don't want to manage my sin. I want to deal with my sin. I want to place it before you. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I want to run freely. We desire to run freely in Jesus' name, fulfilling the purposes that you have for us. The Lord, I pray that we fall in love with your Savior. I pray for a new, a renewed sense of a deeper love for Jesus that'll stir our hearts today, that it overflows into the days you allow us to live, that it overflows in our testimony, overflows in our worship, overflows in our praise, overflows in our time with you. Lord, fill our cups today, and I pray for a holy empowerment to run this race. Thank you, Lord, that you've already gone before us, and you've asked us to follow you. And depending upon the Spirit of God, we lean into you in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.